welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hey, Jessica. My name is Jeff Roberts. Uh, I am the co-founder or a co-founder of a company called Outseta. Uh, we are an all-in-one solution for launching a SaaS business. So people think of us uh, or often refer to our, our product as sort of being the Shopify uh, for, for SaaS or membership style businesses. So if you want to launch one of these companies, historically, you would go out and buy five or 10 different pieces of software, a subscription billing system, a CRM, an email marketing suite, a help desk. Outseta basically brings all those tools together in a single platform, uh, making it much easier for a solo founder or a bootstrap founder uh, to launch a subscription business quickly. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Jeff. Can you, um, as we dive in, can you talk a little bit about what your company and or team structure looks like today? Sure. So we're we're still um, a relatively small business, and that is very much by design. So um, I still refer to us as, as a startup, but the company is actually uh, just about to turn six years old at this point. One of our objectives as a business has been to remain small, independent, and bootstrapped, which we've we've done for six years so far and have every intention of continuing to do so. Uh, but we are a team of five or six today. There are three, co- three co-founders and three other people that are contributing to the business at this point. But the part that's most unique about us is we've adopted an organizational design that's called self-management, uh, which basically just means there are, are no bosses at Outseta. And our reason for doing that is not that we have any sort of issue with authority or, or bosses or hierarchy or anything like that. It's more, we have this premise that 20 outstanding people can compete with a larger organization of say 100 people. Um, if you're making great hires, if you're giving people true autonomy to, to do their jobs, and if you're letting people contribute to the business in the areas where they're most interested and able. So everybody basically comes into the company, You know, they have kind of all the context on what we're trying to do and access to all of the information about our business. Um, and then we set them free to help us out however they best can. That is awesome. And I have so many follow-up follow-up questions based on what you just shared there. You kind of you mentioned the whole idea of kind of self-management. And that sounds amazing in theory, but I can imagine that if you don't aren't crystal clear about your company's values and what you're looking for from each person on the team, that could go horribly wrong. Can you maybe speak to some of the kind of values that you've curated and how you convey that to make sure that you find people who are autonomous and can manage themselves remotely in a very small, in a small bootstrapped uh, remote team? Yeah, it's something we've spent a ton of time on early on. Um, If you go to outsetta.com slash blog and look at our very first blog post published six years ago, we came out of the gates talking as much about why we wanted to build this company this way as we did about the actual product that we were trying to build. And at that time, I, I had a lot of people reach out to me and say, all this stuff sounds great, but you know, you're a day zero startup. You're talking an awful lot about organizational design and how you're going to scale the business and all these sorts of things uh, before you even uh, are sort of confronted with needing to do those things. What's up with that? 
And that was totally fair feedback. But I think now at this point where we're six years in, people have seen the extent to which we've talked about these things. We've been putting our values out there, you know, into the into the ether, so to speak, for a long time that people know that we're we're living these things. They know that we're taking these things seriously. And they are what attract people to Outseta. We have like a crazy spreadsheet at this point with people that have reached out to us that have said, these values resonate with us. We want to work with you. And it it's turned into probably our, our greatest hiring tool to, to be perfectly honest with you. In terms of like how things could go wrong and what the values are, there's a few kind of key points. I, I think the first one is this idea that a small team of sort of A players, I don't, I don't like the connotation of ABC players, et cetera, but you get the idea. A small outstanding team can outperform a much larger team. And that's really a reaction to just what we see commonly in, in tech. And, you know, we're living through that right now. You, you sign on to Twitter, you sign on to social media, you see all these big name tech companies that, you know, people admire that are laying off workers by the thousands. And to me, that says something fundamentally about how we're building tech companies. And we talk about the venture uh, path as, as being, you know, we're building these high growth companies. That's true to some extent, but what I see more often is we're building these very fragile companies. Um, and oftentimes that additional spending, that additional headcount is just not playing out in terms of driving efficient growth. So that's one of the things we're, we're sort of reacting against. I don't ever want to be in a situation where we need to lay somebody off. That does not mean that we're not being aggressive, that we don't want to grow a big business. It just means I think there's a healthier way to do it. So that is um, certainly a big part of it. Um, we want to remain independent. So our co-founding team came out of a previous company where we did go the venture route. We had a, a big success. All the investors were happy. All the employees were happy. It's not like we had a bad experience. But just looking at the previous company that we worked at, we said, you know what, we had a lot more fun as a, as a company of 20 than we did as a company of 200. We want to stay independent so that, you know, there isn't sort of that pressure to just add headcount or chase growth at all costs and we can sort of own, own our own destiny. And then this idea of being a meritocracy is, is really important to us too. So rather than having somebody who has a particular title or who's your boss telling you what to do, um, our objective when hiring is to bring the most talented people that we, we can onto the team um, and kind of set them free. So in the context of our company today, where we're five or six people, to be perfectly honest, that's not that hard. Starting with our co-founding team, like one of us is a back-end developer, one of us is a front-end developer, and then I'm a marketer. So we had very complementary skill sets to start. And frankly, that's part of the reason we, we chose to work together. But as we folded new people into the team, you know, everybody has some particular skill set that can benefit the business and also areas of the business that they're most interested in. And our objective is to stay out of the way, let them sort of gravitate to the areas of the business where they're best able to help. Um, and it it sounds really obvious, but like I'm not a developer, so I don't write code. <laughs> and I, I do have a marketing background, so I gravitate towards our marketing projects. And point being, it, you know, it hasn't been that difficult for us at this size. I think one of the challenges for us as a company going forward is just taking all these ideas and proving that they can scale, you know, from a team of six to a team of 20, um, 
to however however big we get. And uh, to be fair, that's that's something that we need to prove out. Yeah, absolutely. And I had a couple of follow-on questions to what you said there. Um, you said something like really interesting a few minutes ago where you were talking about like when you, from day one, having this culture of being really intentional about sharing the type of company that you're building mm -hmm. um, and really architecting the organizational design from that get-go really helped you attract a really probably a great audience, both for outside as well as a great hiring pipeline. When you are looking to bring on additional person to the team, how do you make sure that filter, like it's to filter out, like, you know, the people who don't match you guys' values? Yeah. That, that, so that's you don't a, end up bringing on someone who might be toxic to the team. That's a, that's a really good question. I would say a few things come to mind. The first one is, like our objective in talking about all this stuff as much as we do and publishing as much content about all this stuff as much as we do is really first and foremost, um, not just to encourage other businesses to consider these sorts of ideas, but to allow people to sort of filter themselves out. So as an example, all three of our engineers uh, today, we have three engineers, their names are Dimitri, Dave, and Bernard. Um, they are all software engineers with 25 plus years of experience. They've all been CTOs of successful SaaS companies. They could easily go out on the open market and make far more than the $210,000 salary that Outsetta offers them today. They've chosen to work with us because they've said, you know, we're at this point in our career where we're optimizing for flexibility. We want to work on a project that we think is fun. We like the opportunity to you know, earn equity in the company at a much higher rate than you would at another business. So they've sort of self-selected into this is something that appeals to me, even though I'm not, you know, maximizing my pay rate, for example. And there's a lot of other people um, out there who are developers who would look at that and scoff and say, you know what, I can go to Facebook and make four or $500,000 a year as a software engineer. So um, I, I don't mean to make it all about compensation, but the point is by putting a lot of this stuff out into the world, I think candidates kind of self-select in who, who do care about our values. And another way that, that you can see that is um, we've uh, published a lot of content about encouraging businesses to um, not shy away from societal issues uh, and, and things of that nature and recognize the influence that they have on society and that they can use, you know, a business as a a tool for good, so to speak, you know, as well as I do, there's a lot of other people that say all of those sorts of discussions don't belong in the workplace. I want to show up. I want to do my job. I want to shut up and have that be it. And that's totally fine. People come to our website. They recognize that we are a business that advocates for, you know, being a participant in, in society and, and things of that nature. Um, and, and they self-select out. So I, I think that is probably the single biggest thing. Aside from that, definitely this notion of everything we do encourages us to hire slowly. So I think anytime we do add somebody to the team, first of all, we're going to run a pretty exhaustive process to, to see who's out there and who's interested in, in joining us and all of that. But also we'll do things in most instances like start working with somebody in a contractor capacity first 
um, just to kind of give them an opportunity to work with our team, to work with them, make sure the working relationship uh, is working well both ways. But I think ultimately all of these things that sort of force you to slow down and not just be adding headcount to put a butt in a seat um, is a really, really good thing and uh, sort of a, a problem that drives good behavior. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it's a really measure. You have a really measured, thoughtful approach to, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum that you see a lot of startups talk about where it's almost like growth at all cost, you know, hire quickly, fire fast, you know, which to be fair, probably has a place for some companies, but it definitely yeah. sounds like this is like what you're building outside of is the antithesis of that. Um, can you speak a little bit more to, you know, how you mentioned talk, talking about like hiring very slowly? Can you speak a little bit to what you specifically look for and what that process looks like to make sure that you really are finding people that, you know, A, do match your values, do self-select in and don't potentially create issues in the future? Yeah, to be honest with you, like we, we're still small enough. I, I can't sit here and tell you that we have like a super dialed in hiring process um, in, in terms of like it's documented and rigid and we go through all these different steps. Um, I think at this point, to be honest with you, it, it's largely we have so much inbound interest in our positions. The people that are interested in working with us continue to kind of pop up in my email inbox, continue to build a relationship with me. And, you know, over the years, we've gotten to know a lot of people that we already know we, we want to hire. Um, we, we know that, uh, you know, they've, they've stuck around, they've shared our values, they've got a skill set that would be valuable to us as a business. And we kind of view it, or certainly I view it, as my responsibility to make sure that Outseta is growing fast enough that we can go out and uh, hire these people and sort of earn the ability to, to bring them onto our team. That That's certainly the mindset that I have. Like a big part of my job is building relationships with people years before we will probably end up hiring them. And I think when you take that mindset, rather than looking at hiring as this sort of transactional, I'm going to throw up a blog, or I'm going to throw up a job description, have leads come in, sort of process it it just changes sort of how you view hiring in in the first place and like our our biggest challenge is there's so many people that i want to add to our team and um you know that kind of uh doesn't fly in the face of but the fact that we want to stay small and independent it's like we've got this problem where i'm eager to add all these different people to our team but we also want to add them kind of as slowly and deliberately as as we can yeah absolutely and i know you've kind of talked about having a kind of a meritocracy and everyone self managing how do you yep. ensure that you know projects are getting done in a timely fashion and you don't have quote unquote too many cooks in the kitchen yeah, that, that's that's a good a good question. Um, one one thing that helps, or I, I think there's two things that that help a lot here. One is what we're what we're building. So Outseta is this massive undertaking. Um, it is sort of an all-in-one software product that covers, you know, billing, CRM, email, help desk, uh, financial reporting, 
all these categories of software that are commonly understood. But the truth of the matter is Outsetta is really more like four or five different software products rather than one. It is this big thing. And we knew going into this that this was something we were going to devote 15 or 20 years um, to building. And the point is, as you bite off building something of that size, there's never any shortage of stuff to work on. Like we are totally oversubscribed at all times in terms of stuff that we want to build and what we can build within the context of a team of our size. So there, there's plenty of work to go around is, is the first point. The second point, and whenever I get questions about sort of self-management and the structure and how we make decisions and all those kinds of things, one of the things I talk about a lot is like, we don't have budgets, we don't have forecasts, we don't really have performance targets that we've stated as a business, which is obviously very um, different from sort of the status quo way of building a company. But the reason that all of this works is because we give everybody true ownership in the business and access to all information. That is what you don't see in a normal company. And the minute you give people true ownership in the business beyond just sort of a small you know, ec equity grant, uh, and the moment you give them all information, people, people automatically start working in the best interest of the business because it's in their best interest too. Those two things become aligned in a way that you don't see in a typical company. So an example I like to give is just around budgeting, right? So let's say we have a total budget as a company of $100,000 per year. If everybody knows that and everybody has access to you know, all of our current expenses and whatnot, one employee is not going to run off and spend you know, $50,000, half of that budget, because they know that's not viable for the business. They know that that would come at the expense of doing the other things we want to do as a business. By giving people that complete picture, people know when they're making a decision that they can make independently on their own versus when they're making a decision that we need to really get together as a team and discuss. Um, so I think that that context and that equity um, actually is, is very much like a self-policing thing that encourages autonomy, you know, when autonomy is appropriate and encourages um, sort of bigger group conversations when that's appropriate. Absolutely. It sounds up like giving everyone, you know, significant, you know, shares um, and quote unquote equity in the business. It really encourages people to think like owners. Um, can you speak a little bit to how you, you know, I know you mentioned off of the record how you don't really have like traditional vesting periods. Can you speak a little bit to how you kind of divvy up equity in the business? Um, and yeah. 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 So we have, we have a, um, an interesting model, uh, but the idea is every employee gets the ability to work for cash compensation or equity compensation to the extent that they want to. So we have standardized an annual pay rate for all employees at Outsetta. If you work full-time for cash compensation at $210,000 a year. And we basically have tiers based on how many days per week you want to work for cash compensation. If you work one day a week, you make $42,000 a year. If you work two days a week for cash compensation, it's $84,000 a year. Three days a week is $126,000 a year, all the way up to that $210,000 number if you do work on outset of full-time for cash compensation. If you come into the business and you say, you know, 
the equity component is important to me. I want to build ownership in this company quickly. I believe in this company. I have the ability in my life to devote more of my time to working for equity. You can do that to the extent that you want to as well. So myself as an example, right now I am working for Outseta three days a week for cash compensation. So I'm making $126,000 a year. The other two days a week, I earn equity in the business. So every week I sort of accrue, let's call it two days of equity. And the way that the equity component works is super simple. We look at the total number of days across all employees that they've elected to work for equity. And then you look at the number of days that you've elected to work for equity, and that's your ownership stake in the company. So let's say in the history of Outseta, 100 total days have been worked for equity, and I have worked 10 total days for equity. I own 10% of the business. Uh, we've been you know, doing this for six years now, so obviously the timetable is, is longer, and it's a lot more than 100 days, uh, but it gives people the flexibility to sort of design the comp package that works best for them. And we think it's been really appealing to my previous point. Like there are people that can certainly make more than $210,000 a year in tech, but we think that is a, a good salary that is in line with hiring excellent people. And likewise, we think if the equity component is, is important to you, um, we don't think, I know we're giving you an opportunity to earn a substantial equity stake in a business at a rate three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times faster than you would um, in a traditional tech business. That's such an interesting and unique model that, quite frankly, I've never come across before. How did you guys, you know, come up with this idea and this model? Like what, in, like what inspired it? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things that were important here. Um, the first is I, I think our, our three co-founders, um, all feel strongly this notion of if the business succeeds, we want everybody else on our team to, to have success alongside of it. And typically what you see in tech, even, even with founders that are very generous is, you know, the, the founders, the CEO, maybe a few people on the executive team have some sort of significant outcome. And yeah, everybody else in the company, you know, makes makes some money if there is a significant outcome. But it, there's a huge gap between what the founders make and what the employees make. And sort of our mindset is, if we have long tenured employees that have been working with us for a long time, whether they're a founder or not, we want to sort of spread the wealth around. We want to see, um, you know, I'd I'd rather have twenty outsetta employees make a million dollars than me make 19 million and them all make a few thousand. Um, that, that's kind of at the core of this thinking. Um, the other piece that I would say is important is we've looked at, frankly, our own path to kind of bootstrap outset a, to this point, and also just what we're seeing in the economy at large. And more people are embracing entrepreneurship, more people are working for themselves, more people are working remotely. And like one of the things our product does is encourage entrepreneurship. And I'm a perfect example. When we started building out Seta, we were bootstrapping. So our ability to pay me a paycheck was limited until our revenue grew. So I was out consulting two, three days a week um, in our early years until our revenue grew and Outseta could afford to pay me more and I could afford to work on Outseta more. 
And when I look at the entrepreneurial landscape, I see a million people in that same scenario where they've got some project of their own that they're bootstrapping to life, uh, but they still have financial needs and, and that kind of thing. So one of the things we wanted to do was optimize for the ability to bring really talented people onto the team uh, with whatever sort of time commitment they want to give to us. So while we talk about the full-time salary at outset of being $210,000 per year, we also wanted the ability to go after a really talented employee and say, hey, you've got your own thing going on or you've got another project you care about. You can come work with us a day a week, two days a week. You can earn compensate cash compensation at a pretty good rate, or you can earn equity if you'd rather do that. Um, so I think the flexibility of the model is really the other thing that was important to us. Like the people that are going to do the best work in this environment are probably pretty entrepreneurial people anyways. So we want to encourage them to continue to do the entrepreneurial things that they care about while also giving them a, a really great opportunity to work it outside of part-time too. Absolutely. And I can just imagine like everything that you've archetyped, you guys have archetyped with this model has, you know, really does cultivate towards at the very least hiring entrepreneurs, if not full entrepreneurial minded people who can, you know, think like an owner. And so along those same lines and, you know, having to find people that are ambitious and have that sort of the right mentality for outside how do you factor in things like prioritization like making sure that you know there is a lot of different projects based on the scope of what you guys are building but like how do you ensure that you know things are prioritized in the right fashion yeah that that's a really good question too um i would say a couple things have really helped us so going back just to kind of like what our what our company is and how it operates. Um, one of the things that is interesting about Outseta is most of our problems as a business, uh, being perfectly frank, are, are self-imposed. So we are building this massive software product in a super competitive market, but we also have a relatively small target market. We sell to bootstrap founders who by their very definition, you know, have no budget, have no revenue, so we're, we're sort of playing entrepreneurship absolutely on, on hard mode. Like how do you build this massive scale software product, bootstrapping it and sell it to a cost sensitive audience? Like in a lot of ways, if you were a VC looking at Outseta, it's completely unattractive in a lot of ways because of these sorts of characteristics of the market that we're targeting and, and what we what we chose to build. So all of that predicates that we make some sacrifices in, in how we run our company. Um, things we are not willing to sacrifice are the things we've talked about, the equity structure, the compensation, the organizational design. Uh, but in order to run a viable business, we can't do some of the things that you see normal businesses do. And two of those that we've really latched onto, we have no sales team whatsoever. Uh, we basically just said, you know what, a sales team in a growing organization Yes, they generate sales, but it, it tends to also incur a ton of overhead in terms of people-related expenses. And similarly, when it comes to customer support, what we've seen uh, in a lot of tech companies is customer support really becomes almost a second-class organization. You know, you 
are used to looking at developers as sort of these rock stars and the entry level jobs are in customer service and are compensated at a lower rate and all of that. And the reality is a lot of those customer service people end up just kind of um, like taking in uh, customer service requests and escalating them to people that are actually able to solve those problems, right? A customer service agent gets a tough technical question. They have to pass it off to engineering who needs to make some change um, to address the issue. And, and we said, again, that's an area where, first of all, we don't want to build this organization where we have kind of these different classes of employees. And secondarily, there's just inefficiency in that model. We would rather have, you know, somebody responding to customer service requests that can actually fix the problem on the spot. So going back to your, your question, one of the things that's really helped us from a prioritization perspective is every single person at the company, particularly on the service side, does customer service. So myself, all of our engineers, like these are, again, you know, engineers with 20 plus years of experience. Most engineers with 20 plus years of experience would not want to be answering support tickets. All of our engineers answer support tickets all day long. And uh, what that means in practice, um, sort of a benefit of that model is we are really tuned into the issues that our customers are experiencing because all of us are on the front lines, you know, hearing about those issues, helping solve those issues all day long. So I think because of that, there's been very little like infighting or squabbling about like what the priorities are for us as a business because they're front and center for every single employee at our company uh, every day. And certainly as, as any business would, you know, we discuss them, we, we have a product roadmap and we need to prioritize features and all those sorts of things. Um, but it's, it's been pretty apparent to us throughout the six years that we've been in business where we need to spend our time and energy. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such a fascinating model around in particular customer support. I couldn't agree with you more that I th do think that in a lot of organizations, customer support does become, unfortunately, the second class um, citizens and they're not necessarily treated with as much a like opportunities to grow in the company as well as, you know, you know, ways to really make a much bigger impact. Um, yeah. And it sounds like you can really have the opposite of that, given the fact that every single person is, you know, chatting with customers every single day. Um, and that obviously means that they're at least theoretically, at least everyone really knows like, you know, what are, you know, the top issues as well as what are the top priorities um, that customers actually care about. Can yeah. you maybe speak a little bit more to um, how you make, like how you make sure that, you know, before somebody does join your team, that they are comfortable, even if they do have 20 or 25 years of experience building software, they are comfortable not only talking to customers, but can do it well. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll use two examples um, from people we've added to our, our team recently. Uh, we added a designer named James and a developer named Bernard. Um, and in, in both cases, these are senior talented people. And I think it starts with just a very transparent conversation. Um, I, I keep using developers because developers, as I said, are, are you know, oftentimes uh, 
looked at as like the rock stars within tech companies and they get to kind of do whatever they want as long as they're off building the most important things. Uh, but with both James and Bernard, we, we basically said, you know, this is how we operate the company. Um, our expectation is that you're going to come in and spend a third of your time on customer support. And it, this goes back to this idea of kind of self-selection too, right? A lot of engineers would look at that and say, are you kidding me? Um, I'm a, you know, extremely talented software engineer. This is a highly in-demand skill set. I want to be building software, not answering support tickets. And those are the sort of people that are just going to self-select out and say, this isn't for me. In the case of both James and Bernard, they said, we understand that's part of the shtick. Like that's part of the expectation. Um, I don't think that we even need to look for people that necessarily love that. Like I, I don't love answering support tickets to the extent that I do, but it's important work that has to be done. And in the context of a small team, every everybody's got to chip in in areas like that. So uh, I, I think it's just, you know, being brutally upfront and, and honest with people in terms of expectation setting. The second part of your question is tougher. The second part of your question is, um, how do you know that people are are actually like able to do that and able to do that well? Um, and I and I think that's uh, to be fair something we haven't totally figured out yet. So there are certainly differences um, in terms of myself responding to a support ticket versus other people on our team responding to a support ticket. And I think one of the things we've tried to do is kind of route customer service questions again to the person that we think is most appropriately suited to actually answer the issue well. So I'll give you um, just an example that I mean as a representative example. If we have a customer that we've screwed up in some way and they're having uh, a, a tough experience without SETA and they're upset, I probably deal with most of those support tickets. Um, I have maybe a little bit uh, gentler of a, of a skill set and a more customer service kind of oriented skill set. Like let's, let's talk the person off a cliff. Let's uh, acknowledge their problem. Let's acknowledge our wrongdoing. I, I have a little bit more maybe in the way of some of those soft people skills that are needed in that type of situation. Um, and similarly, like when people write in and have marketing related questions, they tend to get routed to, to me because I'm better suited to answer them. Um, but on the flip side, if somebody comes in with a very technical question, some of our engineers are not as strong in the people sort of focus soft skills as I am, but they are incredibly technically skilled and um, just great at answering those technical questions in a way that I never could. So we try to kind of ebb and flow as a team and recognize sort of who's needed to respond to each issue. Um, but I also think that that's something where we need to invest more as a company to sort of level up everybody's ability. Like I need to have a greater ability to answer some technical questions. Some of our engineers need to have a greater ability to handle, you know, customers in a um, friendly and understanding way, th those sorts of things. Um, so I think there's room for improvement across the board from everybody. Absolutely. You bring up so many like, great points. Um, with what you were sharing there. And I could dive into it a lot longer. 
But before we wrap up, I always like to ask a couple of lightning round questions. Sure. If you were to write a book tomorrow, what would you write it on? <clears throat> Ooh, uh, related to related to work in some way. <laughs> uh, I purposely left it open ended. Okay, so I'll I'll give you the non work related answer first, and then I'll I'll turn it on onto work related things. So I, I love writing. Uh, I went to school. Uh, I was a writing major, um, and have written a lot for outside of it, just a lot in my life in general. Um, I have a children's book uh, that I've published um, that is actually about Tom Brady. Uh, it's kind of a, a child's uh, introduction to Tom Brady and Tom Brady's career. Uh, so I've done everything from that to more recently. I, I'm not a digital nomad. I've, I've got a family at home and whatnot, but I do love to travel. And uh, my wife and I and, and our kids travel six out of every 24 months. Um, we've done that three times now, and I've written sort of a travel book during each of those trips. One of them I'm getting ready to, to publish any day now. Um, so all of that is to say I have a pretty diverse interest in, in writing and, and travel writing specifically. But when it, uh, when it relates more to tech and entrepreneurship, the things that really get me going in general is all this people, people first stuff. Um, and it's not just about it's not just about treating people well. It comes down to, I have this fundamental belief that sort of organizational health is as big of a competitive advantage as you can have in, in the business world. Like all these things around the organizational design that, that we've discussed um, really come down to, yes, I think, you know, treating people well is the right thing to do, but I also like fundamentally believe that it is going to make your company more successful. Um, and I, I think too many people look at like people first initiatives as um, just this friendly do-gooder type of thing. And all of those things are, are true. And I don't want to downplay that stuff, but I really think it's an advantage too. Um, and it's a big part of why we do what we do. I, I think the healthier the company, the, the better results it's, it's going to create. So that is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Like how do you actually build a healthy organization that can, you know, handle the ups and downs that that come with entrepreneurship. And in tandem with that kind of a related topic that is really near and dear to my heart too, is um, you hear so much in the tech industry about bootstrapping versus the VC route and one is evil and one is better. And um, I think that whole conversation in short is, is kind of bullshit. <laughs> um, I think what you need to find is harmony between your goals and how you want to build your business. Um, there's a there's a time and place for venture capital if you know you you want to um, have a moonshot and you're building something that's that's uh, capital intensive and all those kinds of things. But there's a time and place for for bootstrapping too, and it shouldn't be this decision that you view as just like a personal preference. It should be a series of deliberate decisions that all work in harmony with one another and getting those things right is one of the things that contributes to organizational health in a huge way. Certainly there's, there's culture and, and all of that, but just making sure all these aspects of how you are building your business actually like build on top of each other in a logical way, I think is something that's not discussed nearly enough. And one of the things that's amazing about 
my job today is I get to see inside so many different startups that I've, you know, developed stronger and stronger opinions on, um, you know, your funding needs to match what you're building, which needs to match your target market. And how do you get all these things to um, kind of interplay in a productive way that's going to increase your odds of being successful? Um, so those are kind of the two things that I like to talk about a lot. I couldn't actually agree more. Um, and I do think that a lot more founders need to, I wish there was a much larger conversation, especially on the VC side of things, people who skew that way of realizing like being intentional about what you are building and like, hey, does you know VC money really make sense for this particular business and or the lifestyle that you're trying to create for yourself? Um, and having those kind of honest conversations as well as just being really people first. And then kind of the second question I like to ask, uh, shifting gears a little bit, is what's the book that's had the biggest impact for you as a people first leader? Yeah, it's, it, there, there's two that I'll mention. Um, the one that's had the biggest impact by far is uh, called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Leloux. Um, that is kind of the book that has become most well-known for sort of introducing these concepts of self-management and um, building a flat organization and why that's beneficial and how these companies need to operate. So without question, um, we've kind of taken the most inspiration from that book, I would say. The other one that I, I like to mention all the time, though, is um, by a guy named Adi Pinar, and it's called Life Profitability. Um, and it's it's similar in um, it's similar in theme in a lot of ways. It, it's much less focused on organizational structure and organizational design and much more focused on like, what is the goal of entrepreneurship anyways? And the overarching sentiment of that book is if you're starting a company, if you're diving into entrepreneurship, the overarching goal for everybody should be to enrich your life in some way. And I, and I think that is true. I think everybody gets into entrepreneurship because they, they have this notion of a better life and, and they want to work towards that notion of a better life. But the reality that I see, um, and I'm guilty of it too, uh, is a lot of founders, when you look out your, your window, are massively stressed and their companies are not really enriching their lives. And a lot of instances, their companies are kind of ruining them and, and making them really, really stressed and not actually helping them lead a better life. And what I love about Addie's book is it sort of forces you to confront those types of questions and say, wherever you are in your entrepreneurial journey, is this actually making your life better? Um, and, and as I said, I'm the, I'm the first one to, to tell you that that book was sort of a good gut check for me. Um, Outsetta has has grown sort of slowly and, and steadily since since we started. But, you know, I worked for for years without Outsetta contributing to my life uh, in a significant way. I had a lot of financial stress. I was working really, really hard. Uh, I still work really, really hard. Um, and reading that book was a good reminder for me to kind of step back and say, yeah, I, I do want Outsetta to be successful. I am committed to this thing. But this is going to be something I work on for 15 years. And how do I sort of reconcile where we're at with a business with the fact that the whole reason I should be doing this is to make sure that 
outside of it is enriching my life? Um, and how do I make those things, um, you know, kind of work together before, you know, outside of delivers me millions of dollars and that kind of thing. Um, I don't want to waste years of my life uh, being miserable and not kind of thinking about the profitability of my life because I'm so focused on the profitability of the business. So th those two are great. Highly recommend um, to, to anybody that's considering entrepreneurship. Absolutely. And actually, I haven't heard of either one of those books until you brought them up. And I just like jotted down notes personally. It kind of reminds me of a quote and I kind of crunch a little bit because of some of to even mention this, but it definitely reminds me a little bit of that quote from like, I think it was in the four hour work week from Tim Ferriss, where it's talking about how like, you know, people go from, you know, kind of drones working in a company, you know, and I know in this case, it was for employees in a company to like suddenly having a midlife crisis and driving a motorcycle at, you know, 55. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, so it's been really great chatting with you, Jack. Where can listeners find you online? Uh, yeah, the, the best place to find me, um, certainly if you want to shoot me an email for any reason, it's jeff at outseta.com. Uh, I am a G-off, so it's G-E-O-F-F. Um, or the other best place to find me is on Twitter. It's uh, at Jeff T, uh, as in T-ball, and then Roberts. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the Remote Work Tribe podcast. Thanks for having me, Jessica. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.